Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of The Irish and Sunday Independent. And we're talking about Apple and that seismic ruling from Europe uh, this week. And I'm joined by Brian Keegan, Director of Public Policy in, the Ch- in Chartered Accountants Ireland. Uh, Brian, you're welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adrian. Brian, you were there for some of the hearings. Um, at this point, we know what the ruling was. Um, the commission took a bit of a walloping, big victory for, for Ireland and for Apple. But what, what was the mood like when you were there in, in the court? I think the mood was anxious, is the best way to describe it. It's a very, very high-stakes game. It was a very high-stakes game for the Commission for two reasons. First of all, it was really their first, one of their first major forays into using state aid on a tax issue. But secondly, the sheer amount of money involved you know, had everybody on edge. And even people who got no interest, good, bad or indifferent in foreign direct investment or in multinationals or in corporation tax, or even in tax generally, you know, say 13 billion, what's going on here? So yeah, there was an unprecedented level of interest, um, very tight security uh, around, the, around, around the court building and uh, a real sense of intensity about what was going on. Now, I've been writing about this case for years. I've interviewed some of the principals involved, including Margaret Vistager and also uh, Tim Cook of Apple. Um, I, along the way, did get the feeling there was an underlying sense of antagonism and antipathy in Europe that was informing some aspects of this case toward Ireland's low tax policy and big US tech uh, uh, multinationals in general. Did you get a sense of that uh, um, in the court? Yeah, it's impossible to see this um, case just purely in isolation as a case in its own right. You know, there's been a long history of antagonism, if that's not if that's the right word to use, with wisdom um, towards what Ireland does, and it dates right back actually to the creation of the twelve and a half percent rate. We used to have a 40% corporation tax rate and a 10% rate for manufacturing companies in Europe. So you can't segregate manufacturing companies like that. You have to bring them up so that everybody's on the same rate, expecting we'd land somewhere around 25 30%. It was Rudy Quinn at the time settled on 12.5%. And I think that irritated the Europeans big time. 
Mm. Uh, that they felt there was a bit of slate of hand going on there. What they didn't realize was that nobody was actually paying tax at 40%. They were all paying it at 10 so 12.5% was actually an increase for the vast majority of taxpaying companies. You know, we didn't, we didn't start off well in our, in our corporation tax journey and narrative with the European institutions. And there's always been that you know, slight sense of intensity. And I would have attended briefings at different times from the European institutions, and particularly in the run-up to this case. And it was quite clear, the Europeans were uneasy about the way we were leveraging our corporation tax rate to provide competitive advantage for foreign direct investment. So I don't think you can you know, draw direct causality between European attempts to harmonize corporation tax approaches and a particular case, but certainly one has informed the other, no question about that. Yeah, I mean, going on at the same time. Um, I mean, a lot of people would have made, we're slightly off the topic here, but if you look at a country like Germany or France, they have unbelievable infrastructure. They've got uh, yeah. access to incredible universities and and skills. The argument has often been made about Ireland that, first of all, tax is a sovereign issue within our own uh, comp- competence, not really a federal European competence. And you can be the, the most pro-European person in the world, but still make the argument that we need something other than our Guinness and our warm welcomes to compete on uh, with some of these larger countries who have all of these unbelievable advantages. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, you you know, you you cite Germany. Germany is one of the countries in the world that takes the least tax out of its companies. Um, Sorry, can you just explain that? That sounds completely counterintuitive. Yeah, it is is completely counterintuitive. But if if, if you look at the charts of, you know, the, the relative corporation tax takes in the big countries relative to the small countries, it's the small countries that take the most out. Quite bizarrely, how does because they, that they, that that happens because we have a twelve and a half percent rate, and we've got uh, research and development um, reliefs uh, for companies who are you know doing the high tech stuff, and we've got a special relief as well if it's intellectual property related you know located in this country, and that is it, and there's nothing else. But if you look at the other jurisdictions which have much higher nominal rates, you know the the, the German rate famously is is is, is over thirty percent. Um, there are so many reliefs and allowances to reduce down the actual effective rate that those companies are paying um, that their take relative to ours is quite small. We're also, Adrian, I mean, we're working with a corporation tax system that was developed at the back end of the 19th century when companies made money digging stuff out of the ground and making stuff with it, right? And it doesn't suit the current type of economic activity we have, particularly in the multinational sector where stuff has been traded across borders. So there's always going to be that kind of that, 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 that kind of tension. But your original point, I mean, you know, Spain has a wonderful tourism sector because they've got wonderful weather and wonderful beaches. The Germans, the British, the French, they've got enormous natural resources. What have we got? We've got native cunning and a low tax rate. And one of the points that's frequently missed by analysts, I think, uh, when, you know, looking at what companies do. Companies don't really have a great sense of corporate social responsibility when it comes to tax payments. They see corporation tax particularly as a cost to be managed in the same way as they manage uh, payroll, they manage logistics, they manage cost of consumables, they manage energy costs. And they legitimately look for ways to do that through that management. It's not that they've got any sort of particular animus against a particular country or anything like that at all. It's just how do we maximize the return to our shareholders 
by managing our costs, one of those key costs is corporation tax. And that's one of the reasons why they come here. What of this fame, one of the things that came out in this case, and Vestager made the point quite a few times to me and to everybody else who would listen, that at one point Apple was uh, had an effective tax rate in Ireland of 0.005%. Now, Apple has contested that and said that that was taken out of context, and that's not the, the whole picture. Um, the actual ruling itself didn't really take issue with that figure. And there's when, when, we, when we're talking about this in a mainstream context, it's figures like that that really do have the pack quite a punch. Was that ever an accurate um, figure to, to throw out? I mean, and I, I want to be completely fair to, to Margaret Fisteyer here as well. Was that, was that reflective of what Apple was paying? I mean, was, was she right to highlight that? Well, it depends on how you want to read the figures. I mean, by way of example, let's say I, I, I'm an Irish person living in Ireland. I'm an Irish taxpayer. And I do a small piece of work in the UK that falls into the charge to UK tax, right? And I pay, you know, a few hundred pounds sterling on that small piece of work. Now, is it correct to say that my um, rate of tax in the UK is 1% because I've just got a tiny proportion of my income actually taxed under the UK rules? So those kind of analogies were, were an actual fact being made. That's the first point. The second point is this. Um, we think of tax incentives as all about getting investment into the country. The American approach to tax incentives for its corporates was actually quite different. It was all about getting US multinationals to expand out into Europe, into the Middle East, into Asia. This goes right back to the Kennedy era. So they devised a system whereby US multinationals could in actual fact not pay any US tax until the money they made abroad was repatriated back into the States. And all of the stuff that people have been giving out about, and you know, with some justification over the years, um, the Apple case, the double Irish, all these structures were actually about US multinationals deferring their tax bill until such time as the money was repatriated back into the States. So it was never fair to say that the effective rate of tax by a US multinational in any European location was X.001%. It was that until the money got back into the States. Now, indefinite deferral is effectively not paying it at all. And who's fixed it? Well, President Donald Trump fixed it because he came up along at the end of 2017 and he created the US Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and he brought the US Corporation Tax headline rate down from 35 to 21%. But the other thing he did, the other thing he did, which never hits the commentary, was he deemed that all of the monies which were untaxed in Europe and in the Middle East and Asia and everywhere else outside of America by US multinationals were deemed to have been paid back into the US. Okay? So all that deferred money is now in the process of being collected in the US. And it was one of the points um, that, the, that the, the, the counsel for Apple made in the case, and I'm, I, it wasn't explicitly referred to in the judgment, but I'm sure it had a bearing on the judge's thinking. He was making the point, look, we're talking about tax here that's actually now been paid in the US. Mm. We're Would not talking about some magic number that's never gonna get paid anywhere. It's actually currently being paid, not because of a change in U European rules, not because of this tax case, but because the US changed their own tax rules. Which is a point that Apple makes, and that they say that their effective rate is 26% over there. But I suppose, to be fair to the European Commission, perhaps they were in a position where they felt that Europe is a sovereign entity in its own right, and we can't wait to see whether or if 
American authorities will at some point insist that their corporations repatriate their profits. And this, you know, while they're considering this, these massive companies are making tens and hundreds of billions of dollars from our sales and effectively, it seems, not paying any tax anywhere on it. Yeah, and, and you're right about that, Adrian, because let's remember, I mean, the, the, the genesis of this case is the early 1990s. Um, and the, the the actions that the commission took date back to 2016. So an awful lot has actually happened in the last four years. I, I don't want to suggest for a moment that the commission didn't have a legitimate concern and didn't have grounds. And I think that was even acknowledged in the judgment as well. I think that's I think that's right. But I'm just saying that, that the world the world has moved on, mm. and you know future stories might look back on, on this and say I can't imagine anything incidentally more boring than a history book and tax. But just in case in a few years time somebody writes one, they'll probably point to this case. And say, well, actually, this was part of the drift. That sorted out once and for all. Yeah, I, I don't think this was a boring because I think this caught the public imagination for a number of reasons. You had big macroeconomic and political issues. You had issues like tax justice. You had uh, issues like the divide between uh, rich and poor. You had also um, on a kind of an entertaining level on, on in one respect, you had all the speculation about what we could do with 13 billion euro, although it was never clear that even if we lost the case and got that 13 or 14 billion euro in back taxes, that we would be entitled to keep all of it anyway, right? That's exactly right. And I, th I think that argument, it, it was a disappointing one to hear rehashed as recently as yesterday, you know, in some of the political commentary. That 13 billion was never really ours. Mm. That 13 billion belonged to Uncle Sam. Mm. And that's where it's going. And it's, it's, and, it's, and it's currently been paid over. So, you know, just on that I, point, had I, I that we missed out in some way, they're not right. Yeah, just just on that point, had we lost the case, Ireland and Apple lost the case, and mm. that order for back taxes for that thirteen billion was made, and we took possession of that, or we and other European countries took possession of that, would Apple have been in a position where they still would have paid? what they say they're paying anyway to the American uh, exchequer as well as the 13 billion? Or would they have found a way to say, no, no, we were, we were taxed for that in Europe, so therefore we're not going to be taxed in the US? Yeah, you, you're asking me a question there that uh, the answer to which lies on the relationship which Apple, the company, has with the IRS. And I don't know, it's a straight answer. Um, what I can tell you is that under normal circumstances, and this is not a comment about Apple, but just under normal circumstances, where tax is paid in one jurisdiction, which the US recognizes, they generally give a credit for that tax against the US tax bill as if the tax had been paid in the US. So that's that's to avoid double taxation, paying, paying money twice on the same profits. Mm. Whether that applies in this case, I, sim I simply don't know, but that would be the general rule. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, I know Margaret Fisteyer's uh, statement uh, this week on this issue, and she appears to be going down, not going down, but she's bowing out, fighting in this. It's not clear whether she'll appeal or not. She says, we'll carefully uh, study the judgment. She says, that the commission stands fully behind the objective that all companies should pay their fair share of tax. If member states give certain multinational companies tax advantages not available to their rivals, this mm -hmm. harms fair competition in the EU. It also deprives public persons, citizens of funds from much needed uh, investments. 
And she says that the Commission will continue to look at aggressive tax planning measures under EU state aid rules to assess whether they result in legal state aid. At the same time, state aid enforcement needs to go hand in hand with a a change in corporate philosophies and the right legislation to address loopholes. It's I'm. It's difficult to read from that whether that is the opening salvo in an appeal, a final appeal to the European Court of Justice, or whether that is um, Margaret Vestager saying, no, this is why we took this case. Maybe we won't appeal, but I want to reaffirm these are the principles behind where we took the case. And there you go. And and good luck to you all. I'm, it's It's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as you rightly point out, it's, it's, it's a brilliant statement because you could read almost anything into it. Mm. Um, I think ultimately, the decision about whether a case is taken to appeal largely rests with the lawyers. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not a European lawyer by any manner of means, but it is. No, neither am I. That, Thank God. But to, <laughs> to, to, to appeal a case further up the line, um, it can only go on a point of law. Mm. Mm. And a lot of the ruling in the general court uh, delivered yesterday was actually all about the facts of the case. How did Irish tax rules operate? How did the revenue commissioners actually operate those rules? So a lot of the decision actually hand, seemed to me to turn on their discovery of what the facts were. Yeah. So, I, yeah, no, I was going to say, I remember interviewing Tim Cook in 2016, just after this ruling had been made. And I was in Germany at the time. And it had just come out. So I, I I talked to him over the phone and he told me at the time in a kind of a, a bit of an outburst that went around the world. He said he thought this was political crap. That was the phrase he used. It was political crap. This was a politicization of the tax code that basically there was an underlying agenda in Europe and in the European Commission um, to try and harmonize taxes uh, sorry, he didn't say these specific words, but this is what he's referring to because this is what the commentary yeah. was uh, at the time. And to be fair, with the judgment yesterday and the fact that the commission were so roundly rejected by the court, I mean, they knocked down almost every argument. They essentially said that the commission was overreaching and trying to construct uh, uh, things. Um, Cook is entitled to feel... Uh, vindicated by his initial reaction, somewhat. I mean, he was an outburst, but he's entitled to feel vindicated. Yeah, I mean, arguably, this case wouldn't have happened were it not for a similar choice of words by Mr. Cook um, in front of the U.S. Senate Committee back in 2012-2013, uh, where the U.S. Were, were were looking at the at the Apple Tax Bill, and you know there was a reference made there. There was a kind of a careless language, perhaps which seemed to infer that there was some kind of deal or some kind of, you know, sweetheart arrangement mm. going on. And that in itself set off a, a sort of political momentum. So I think, I think the lesson for, for, for anybody commenting on, you know, on the, on the tax affairs of their own businesses is just be very, very careful what you say, mm. because stuff does get picked up on, and certainly the European Commission does read the newspapers, mm. and they don't confine themselves to the European newspapers either. You know, th- th- this stuff, this stuff, does actually have momentum. In terms of politics, there's nothing more political than tax. You know, even in a failed state, the last institution of state to crumble is the tax system. You know, mm. uh, it's always political. It's always about, um, as, 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 as one finance minister put it at one stage, you know, no treasury minister can ever accept the loss of tax revenue to another country. 
it's always a problem for them. It's always going to be political. The multinationals, by definition, are going to be caught in the eye of any storm that's going on because they are multinational mm-hmm. across borders. Yeah, I mean, Marguerite Vestager, I've met her a couple of times. Um, she is a star in the European Commission. Very capable. She's very impressive, by the way. Um, she hasn't really put a foot wrong. Um, and even now, you might say that this is just a case that has been decided. Um, many will still applaud her uh, uh, for having taken the case. Neither you or I are uh, politicians, but I am wondering whether to continue this appeal to the European Court of Justice might be a step too far, even with a political radar on, because because it was so roundly rejected by the general court, if it's appealed and it's dismissed, that then goes to an issue of judgment as to why it was appealed uh, the last time, I would have thought. Again, this is a, a complete amateur error um, off the top of my head speculation. But, uh, but what? Ah, no, it's not amateur error at all. Both of us have been calling this stuff you know, intensively over the last decade. Um, I think you're right. I think there's a little bit of, you know, uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me mm. going on there. Um, you're 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 right about how conclusive the judgment was, and nobody wants to compound the error. Yeah. And the, the other thing too is we're, 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 the, the commission should have bigger fish to fry. I was very taken um, by a comment by Michelle Barnier in mm. of all places the House of Lords only a few weeks ago, where he was talking about the Brexit negotiations, and he was talking about just how important the single market now is more so than it ever was, given the turmoil in the international trading arena. And it seems to me that commissioners would be very, very well employed, really focusing on the international stuff and not what effectively is an EU domestic matter. Because state aid is important. I mean, Ireland benefits colossally from the EU state aid rules because it means that the likes of the big countries, France and Germany and Italy and Spain, are not competing unfairly with us. So, I mean, you know, we should be fans of the whole state aid arrangements. But there comes a point when there's a bigger perspective. And undoubtedly, the bigger perspective at the moment is the tensions between the US and China, the US and the EU, um, you know, what's going on with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. And really, this kind of this kind of case is a deflection from attention on those kind of issues. Mm, I would I would agree. Brian, that's all we have time for. Uh, we, we've got to leave it uh, for the moment. But thank you very much, Brian Keegan, Director of Public Policy for Chartered Accountants hey, Ireland. And now on to one of the big topics of this week. They say there's never any news in July, and that has definitely been the case in 2020. Been a very, very slow week this week. So to discuss the non-news story, that is the massive Schrems data judgment in the European Court of Justice, I'm joined by Castlebridge's Catherine O'Keefe. Catherine, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So... It's going to be difficult to be completely conclusive, I think, about some parts of this judgment. There are 60, 70 pages odd. I know that you have been uh, looking through it, but some of the same questions come up as uh, came up with previous uh, versions of this drama. Um, So I'm going to throw a few at you. If it makes sense to, uh, if there is an answer, great. 
if it needs a little bit more analysis, no problem uh, also. First of all, what's your overall take on the judgment? Do you have one? Um, yeah, my overall take is that I am not surprised that the uh, European Courts of Justice have been completely consistent mm. uh, and that they're going back to being a court of administrative procedure, which is largely what they were set up to do. This is not at all an activist decision. Uh, it is clarifying what rules and uh, scope that the uh, data protection authorities, such as Ireland's DPC, have to make the decisions. So uh, when it comes to you know, the uh, you know, result that the DPC was looking for, they got it. Uh, this uh, particular referral to the courts of justice was asking for clarification and the courts of justice have given that. So it is good. <laughs> okay, well, well let, let's, let's look at that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. As we stand now, what is the obligation of the Irish Data Protection Commissioner? with regard to intervening or not intervening with a data flow uh, uh, from Facebook? So that will depend on which particular uh, mechanism that Facebook has been using to uh, transfer that data. So that's there, there are two bits of ruling here. There's a ruling on the adequacy of the Commission's Privacy Shield decision. Uh, and that the European Courts of Justice struck down, said that the Commission's decision regarding Privacy Shield is invalid. So a lot of the data transfers were going under Privacy Shield. Uh, those must discontinue. And any uh, transfers under Privacy Shield must be suspended. Do, do we any, have any idea, even in the broadest sense, of what kind of data transfers might have relied heavily on Privacy Shield? A lot. So Privacy Shield was, uh, as my colleague uh, put it the past few years, a chocolate teapot that was very, very quickly uh, put into place to uh, cover what was previously done under what was called the Safe Harbor Agreement. Um, and it was done, you know, so basically a lot of the uh, commercial transactions uh, under which our data was exported to the U.S. were done under Privacy Shield very, very quickly. And just to be uh, just to be clear, when mm -hmm. we talk about commercial transactions, mm -hmm. to the layman, what is a commercial transaction? So anything that's going to companies such as Facebook that would be uh, you know, done under the rules of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So we're not necessarily looking at you know, government to government transfers there. But uh, you know, anything done under Facebook, uh, all of the nice little companies that we use, such as you know, SurveyMonkey, uh, you know, all, all the you know, Dropbox, all those things that we use, uh, that you know, Silicon Valley has these nice services that we use, those are generally commercial. They're, they're not uh, you know, not for profits, so, they're not governments. So just, to, just again, to be clear, and the, you know, this is a person mm -hmm. on the street who, who might be asking this question. So, SurveyMonkey, Dropbox, Facebook, is this... Gmail. Gmail, yeah. Is this to say that there is now a presumption? Is there any difference in the presumption of whether we can send a Gmail, use SurveyMonkey, use Dropbox right now after today? Uh, us as data subjects, we can explicitly consent to having our data transferred to a country that does not have adequate protections. So we can decide that we're okay with our data being used by you know, the CIA, <laughs> so on and so Which forth. Which it probably yeah. will be, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so you know, we you know, we still have the ability to, on explicit consent, say, okay, we don't care about our protections. Uh, but companies deciding to transfer our data to the U.S., you know, European companies, uh, controllers or processors of data, uh, cannot assume that we're okay with that. They can't say, okay, we're going to you know, guarantee that under GDPR we have protections. So, you know, but, but we want to use these you know, sub-processors uh, or other services. So again, you know, if uh, you know, the Irish Independent wanted to put out a survey, they could not use SurveyMonkey uh, and say, well, we assume that people are okay with that. So we there would have to be something approximating to much more specific mm. consent from the people likely to be uh, taking part in that, that their data might be used by a mm. partially US-based service, which may have weaker protections. But 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 the again, the the idiot's question is, does that mean that SurveyMonkey or the Irish Independent can take a shortcut through all this by simply um requiring that explicit consent at an early stage, a, a pop-up that says, by doing this, you are consenting to this data being sent to the US, which has a different level of privacy protection to the EU. The answer to that is no, because by doing that, you are not uh, actually getting valid consent. Uh, it's you know, consent contingent on uh, you know, you know, something. So you know, uh, in order for consent to be valid, it has to be fully informed, freely given, revocable at any time. So you know, if you're saying that uh, you know, in order to take the survey, you must consent to our data, you know, to uh, your data being uh, you know, given less protection because mm -hmm. we're going to send it to a place that we know the government there is uh, hoovering it up and using mm -hmm. it for things that we don't know. That, that That's you know, not... You know, exactly you know, freely given consent. Well, then how so is it possible? How is it possible to give freely given cons explicit consent then? Um, uh, for something like this, uh, it, you can't really have uh, freely given consent so, uh, because it'll mess up your survey for, if you're using SurveyMonkey. Yeah, so so again, I'm just trying to get a, mm -hmm. a, a wide view here of mm -hmm. the type of services that mm -hmm. may be curtailed as a result of today's uh, European court judgment. And that sounds like services like we've talked about SurveyMonkey, but Dropbox, other services like that. That sounds like there's a question mark now over whether I now today can use my Dropbox, whether Dropbox can continue serving me as a customer here in Ireland. Yeah, so what a company like Dropbox would be doing would be looking at making sure that they have the ability to keep data within the European Economic Area instead of sending it across the Atlantic. Uh, because the, uh, what the this judgment today did was it looked at two different mechanisms by which they would be allowed to send it uh, to the U.S. One was the privacy shield decision. The other was what was called standard contractual clauses. Um, and you know, with those... Uh, bo both of those mechanisms are you know, slightly different decisions, but the underlying question is whether or not there is adequate protections, which would be essentially equivalent to what we'd have 
in the European Union? Mm. The answer for both of those was no. The uh, uh, When it comes to the contractual clauses, what the courts were ruling on was uh, whether or not uh, you know, th- th- those contracts are valid. And the, the contracts are still valid. But if you have a situation where you're, you know, for instance, Dropbox as a company was guaranteeing that they would ensure there's adequate protections, but they have no control over what the government does. That's not a reasonable contract, so you can't actually rely on those contracts. So, So. (laughs) I mean, doesn't that, isn't the obvious question there, doesn't that kind of undermine the notion that standard contractual clauses can be relied on? I mean, it's all very well to say that they're still legal instruments, yeah, <laughs> but if if the territory, because and, and I know we're confining this conversation largely to the U.S. for the purposes of this discussion, I know mm-hmm. the U- European Court of Justice has to take into account other territories, and we haven't even talked about mm-hmm. places like China, for example. But with the U.S., yeah. if the climate in the U.S. is such that the ECJ is and many Europeans are saying that does you do not respect base our privacy the way that w- we have it here then what's the point in saying that a standard contractual clause is still a valid legal instrument if it can't be used? Yeah, that, that's actually the big question. Uh, so while this ruling said the contracts are okay, the ruling also said that you can't rely completely on the contract. You have to, you know, as a company in the EU, if you want to transfer data to the US or to another country that is a third country outside of the European economic area, you have to do your due diligence and you have to say, okay, I'm relying, I want to rely on these contracts, these stranded contractual clauses. What are the local laws and practices of that country that I want to send data to? Mm. If those local laws and uh, practices don't give what we would consider to be reasonable adequate protection, equivalent protection, then we can't rely on those contracts. So basically what this does is it says the the contracts are valid as contracts, but if you can't say that, you know, know, if the the, uh, government of that country doesn't allow for a company in that country to guarantee adequate protections, then you shouldn't be using the contract. You shouldn't be sending data to that country. So what what we're kind of saying is that (laughs) SECs to the US, that way of transferring data to the US. They're no good. They're no good. Now, in that scenario, what is it that the data protection commissioner here now has to do? Yeah, so in the context of standard protect, uh, standard contract clauses, uh, the data protection commissioner now has to make a decision regarding whether or not all transfers using standard contractual clauses to the U.S. should be suspended. Uh, the ruling still leaves the possibility that other countries that have different laws and practices may still be able to use standard contractual clauses. But in that case, you know, if somebody makes a complaint uh, about that country, that decision may have to be made there too. How, how the BBC can, has to investigate. How can the Irish DPC rule in any way other than to suspend standard contractual clauses with data going to the, U- the U.S.? I would say there probably isn't a way that they can. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons strategically that the DPC decided to refer this to the European Courts of Justice, because what uh, you know, Max Schrems 
appears to have wanted was for the DPC to make this ruling you know, a couple years ago uh, and suspend all transfers to the US, but there would have been very, very difficult questions regarding the scope of the power that the DPC had to do that, regarding what the actual procedural uh, rules are for doing that. So if the DPC had made that decision, instead of referring it to the European Courts of Justice, there would have been immediately appeals, you know, Facebook would have done a judicial review, and it would have gotten really, really, really messy and probably more expensive legally than what we have now with the, you know, referring to the European Courts of Justice. Mm. So instead of doing what the uh, ICO has done, for instance, in the UK, which was make a big you know, noise about, we're doing this enforcement action and then having it fall apart at the back end and not actually you know, having effective enforcement, the DPC has made sure that there are very, very clear rules and now it's very clear that they must act. And if they do act, and if they pursue the line of thinking that you and I are talking about at the moment, which apparently is what the European Court of Justice has decided today, that would, to a very large extent, vindicate what Max Schrems has been trying to do in this case. But it surely would also mean that the DPC would have to tell Facebook what? That, that Irish Facebook users are now no longer able to use the service if any of that data goes to any US servers? So what the uh, DPC will be telling Facebook is you cannot send that data to the US. So <laughs> okay. th th that, that's then on Facebook to figure out how they function how the, how in they a way. Function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been out to... to um, to Facebook's headquarters in California, that that kind of is the brains of the operation. I know we have a big yeah. operation here, but the brains is really mm -hmm. out there. It's very hard to see how um, they would facilitate that. But I mean, already we had uh, Microsoft's uh, data privacy uh, chief, Julie Brill, come out today. She tweeted uh, uh, very soon after the judgment, to be clear, she says, if you are a commercial customer, you can continue to use Microsoft services in compliance with European law. The court's ruling does not change your ability to transfer data today between the EU and US using the Microsoft cloud. Now, is there a nuance there? Yeah, there, there is a nuance which regards the other mechanisms by which you can transfer data. And one of them is uh, that, that it, it being required to complete a contract. So there, are, you know, if, if, when you go through the legislation in GDPR, there are various mechanisms, uh, and uh, you know, one of the unstructured ones is this completion of a contract that was entered into by the data subject. Uh, but again, one of the things that Microsoft has done is it's over the past several years made sure that they have data centers by which you are able to keep your data within the EEA. Mm. So then uh, it's just a matter of mm -hmm. fact or evidence as to where mm -hmm. who your data actually went within Microsoft. When I think of Microsoft's cloud, I obviously think of Microsoft Office, okay? These, these are commonly tools that a lot of people use. I then start to think things like LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second. There are definitely people in LinkedIn who are based in the States whose profiles I see, who are seeing my profiles. Um, that starts to feel a lot more Facebooky than mm -hmm. you know, uh, than than some sort of enterprise kind of server thing. 
Yeah, and there will be a lot of big questions around that. And again, part of this will be the difference between you as a data subject going, okay, I'm okay to let my data go out there, or how do I give how do I give that consent? I mean, how, how do I how do I make that a reality? Uh, that that will have to be part of the sign up procedure. Um, and you know, again, what what are you willing to consent to? And again, for various companies, a lot of that will be questions of transparency and due diligence, making sure that people understand when they're signing up to a U.S. based uh, company. What are we actually letting ourselves in for? Uh, but when it comes to EU-based companies that are required to comply with GDPR, uh, they have to make sure that you know, data is kept to those equivalent protections, that it's not just sent off to the U.S. Uh, so a lot of what's required here is due diligence before you sign up for suppliers, if you're the owner of a company or if you're the one making decisions about where your company's data is going. So HR uh, data, that's going to be a really, really big question for a lot of companies. A lot of uh, companies send data across the Atlantic for you know, the purposes of administering HR. Mm. Um, uh, they're going to have to make sure they're doing the due diligence to ensure that there are, you know, if you're using standard contractual clauses for that, adequate levels of protection. Mm. Um, so, if you have a question, you have to refer it to the DPC, uh, you know, uh, or, or just don't use it. <laughs> you know, find, use it. find a, a company that you know, find a, 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 a HR you know, uh, HR company that keeps your data within the EEA. So, what I what is Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner? What is her next move now? Is it now incumbent on her to, within the next weeks or months, formally notify Facebook in Ireland? that it may no longer run a service transferring um, its users, its European users' personal data to the US unless that data, um, unless it finds some other legal way of doing it. What, what is it that Helen Dixon does now? Yeah, uh, Helen Dixon will have to make a clear decision regarding the uh, suspension of data flows to the US. Um, Even just saying that, I mean, because that can be one interpretation of that is kind of apocalyptic. I mean, suspend data flows. I mean, what are we? I mean, everything mm -hmm. is a data flow, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, how do you suspend? I mean, a data flow is a television signal, a data flow is a phone call. It's a, uh, how do you suspend a data flow to the US? Yeah, again, this will be something where largely she's talking to data controllers and processors, companies mm. in the EEA, or, or companies in Ireland in specific. So, for example, you're, um, you're, you're initially from California, is that right? Yeah. 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 I was actually mm -hmm. born in Chicago, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. so, so I have some family over there. I take it you probably have a lot of family there also. So what mm -hmm. is it that you, in a worst case scenario, wouldn't be able to do in terms of communication? with your family and friends in the States? Absolutely nothing. Uh, again, me personally, I'm not a data controller. I'm not a, you know, a uh, data processor. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm part of Castlebridge as a company, but we have been quite uh, you know, careful as to a lot of our you know, service providers that we use. There are a couple areas where our company is exposed. Uh, me personally, 
my, you know, calling my family, that's domestic use of data. It doesn't actually fall under GDPR. So what, what I personally decide to do in calling my family and, you know, using WhatsApp to talk to them, so on and so forth, that's not actually uh, in the scope of data protection. But is, is, a, is a direct message, is a messenger message? Yeah. So the, the direct message, uh, that, again, is something I'm doing in a domestic capacity when I'm talking to my family. Uh, so that's not, you know, my personal use of data there is not covered under data protection law. Now, if that direct message is done through a company based in Ireland, that company based in Ireland needs to figure out you know, where they're keeping data and you know, what sort of data flows that they are on the hook for. But, but just to be totally clear here, when we talk mm -hmm. about a company like Facebook, the vast majority of Facebook's commercial activities involve personal interaction of the type of a, of a, a direct mail or a messenger message or something or a like or something like that. It's not actually materially different to calling somebody or sending somebody a text. So I'm like, where is the stop start point between um, what, how somebody like you might be affected in, in, in using a service like Facebook? I don't know if you use Facebook, if you did, what like wh where is Helen Dixon's stricture on Facebook going to affect you as a user? Because it mu it must at some point. If Facebook cannot provide some services or some data flows, then that means that you and I won't be able to use some of the services, right? No. So okay. I'm actually going to have to pick apart what you just said okay. there uh, because Please we do. have a a misapprehension that that's actually you know, that the, the the bulk of what Facebook does is that communications process. We we you know just psychologically still think of it as like the telephone. Uh, but most of the data processing that Facebook does is analytics and advertising based on us and you know, crunching all the data on us, which includes crunching all of the data about our communications. So most of what they're doing is not actually the processing necessary to you know, poke my you know, friend in California or to send them a direct message. It's all the stuff that they make money off. It's, it's, it's the analytics, the monetization, the you know, slicing all that up into figuring out how to uh, you know, direct advertising to us. But the, um, bit, and, that, but the yeah. bit that we're interested in here is not the advertising stuff. That's kind yeah. of derivative of what they're doing with the personal data. What the court and what we're all interested in here is the existence of our personal data on within the U.S. sphere mm -hmm. that can be accessed or manipulated or spied on or not given the protections that it would here. So for those purposes... Um, infrastructurally, Facebook is a, a messaging and, and a, a communications company like the phone company, isn't it? Uh, again, yes and no, because, uh, again, what we care about is you know, our communications going to our friends or family in the U.S., uh, but it's predicated on the business model that Facebook has, um, and the, the, the big implications are actually for that business model. So yeah, I mean, we care about, are, are yeah. we just, are we just, because you, I mean, I'm obsessed with, but are we just a little bit too obsessed with the advertising? But I mean, as a kind of, this is a way mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to, to put manners on Facebook from, from mm -hmm. the ad point of view, I, th there's the, the, the root of this questioning is mm -hmm. the person who is 
um, asking the question of how does any of this affect me? You know, um, yeah. how does and any of this ruling? Because the 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 range of potential outcomes that you see or hear or, or read are vast. I mean, they they range from mm. Julie Brill's interpretation, which is almost nothing's going to change. You don't need to worry about anything. Two, um, I can't remember who I saw uh, tweeting this earlier on, but basically suggesting that, um, and in fact, Max Schrems kind mm. of saying, this could shut Facebook's service down in Ireland if you have any US friends. Yeah, and they're both correct. <laughs> is the thing. Okay. So, you know, the Shrems's case you know, is kind of looking at where I'm going with the business model question because, yes, what what we personally care about is can I, you know, send messages to my friends, but Facebook as a company does not, you know, is not going to be supporting sending those messages if they can't do all the stuff that makes them money. Um, and it's that all that stuff that makes them money that uh, is going to have issues. When it comes to Microsoft, I would suspect considering uh, you know, the, the way they've been doing things that they have prepared pretty well for this type of a ruling because it, it, it's not at all inconsistent with previous European Courts of Justice rulings. They, 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 they had the ability to prepare. They've uh, put a lot of structures in place already to allow for the, uh, the the bits that they have to be concerned with to remain within the EEA. I, but I, I, again, I just, I'll just go for, mm -hmm. for one final bite of this. Um, mm -hmm. Regardless of the company's or the organization's business mm -hmm. model, this ruling surely applies equally to an entity that makes no money whatsoever, that has no business model, but that transfers data to the US, uh, personal data to the US, as it does to a company like Facebook, which has this giant um, advertising uh, data crunching model. This is about the, uh, the protection of your data and my data when it enters the US sphere, regardless of who it is that's sending it or or how it's dealt with there. So I, there is still this outside question. I haven't yet seen a really clear answer, maybe because there isn't one yet, and maybe because it will take guidance um, from DPC and others, as to what it could mean for um, some of these larger companies that we use every day and the services, and whether or not any of them will actually be curtailed. Like next month, we'll get a notice saying, you know, like the LA Times have been doing for the last two years. Um, I'm sorry, but because you live in this area, you can't use our service. Yeah, um, I won't really expect us to see everything get shut off. What I will expect us to see is a serious onus on small companies as well as big companies to have a look and do due diligence as to where the data they're you know, sending to suppliers is going. So the, the, the big question is actually, do you understand where the data that your company is processing is going? Do you understand, uh, you know, again, when, when it comes to personal domestic use of data, it's not you know, you know, me as a family member that you know, what, what I decide to do in communicating with my uh, you know, family or friends in the States. That's not something that I'm going to be regulated on. Uh, but you know, as, well, you, a, you will if the service company, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But, you know, so, so what we're looking at is those companies figuring out, you know, 
what is reasonable, what is uh, proportionate when it comes to sending you know, communications you know, back and forth across the Atlantic. That's going to be one of those necessary uh, you know, uh, means of you know, sending data that you know, isn't going to be changed. But does that We're mean that the European to, court is essentially accepting that messaging that we send across to the mm -hmm. state? So that's fair game for the US to spy on? It, it's it's understanding that you know we don't really have controls over you know you know if I'm going to pick up the phone and you know, there, there there is a tap on that phone I'm calling the U.S. Mm. then you know the U.S. may do whatever it's going to do with data that's in the U.S. but you know, I've made a decision to call with someone in the U.S. so you know, there, there's only so much that the European you know, government well, I mean, can do about that. I, I suppose <laughs> the 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 court there could mm. be an assumption. Well, I don't know. If I'm using Vodafone, mm -hmm. which then uh, contacts AT&T, neither of those companies have told me that there's a likelihood that the US is going to be spying on my phone call or on my text message. So why should I assume that there is? So I'm not giving consent mm -hmm. to, to being spied on. So why should Vodafone and AT&T be allowed to process that text or that call? That's again, that's necessary to complete a contract. Uh, that that that's one of those uh, you know, non uh, you know, standard contractual clauses. What what we're looking at here is, you know, for instance, say I wanted to send an email, you know, from myself to someone in uh, France. Uh, is it okay for my email service provider to send that? to uh, you know, the US for analytics and for it to you know, be uh, you know, analyzed mm. by you know, the, the various CIA or other uh, you know, uh, national intelligence uh, you know, programs there uh, as part of a bulk interception of all communications. Um, so, you know, so, so what <laughs> you're saying is, yeah. so much you can do, yeah, there's yeah. only so much you can do about, you know, sending communications directly to the U S mm. but if you use Gmail, uh, and, you know, or, or other email providers, uh, is it okay for the CIA to be intercepting every single you know, email that is, uh, you know, uh, sent through that, even if it's not even entering the U S only some of them, only some of them. <laughs> Um, yeah. I mean, the funny so, thing—the funny thing about all this—is um, I, you, and I, and probably most other mm -hmm. people, especially after the Snowden stuff, I certainly expect that the U.S. because it's been absolutely brazen about, it, and the Brits have as well, and other yes. French and mm -hmm. Israelis and anybody else, and the Russians—they don't even—they they apologize for it. I just assume that they're they're all having a root when and where they want. That's not to okay it. I think. The European court just is absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. It's really good that they're standing up in this way, but it's a little naive, maybe, to 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 think, um, and maybe this is, that's not the ECJ's problem. But maybe for the rest of us, for the for the policymakers here, it's naive to assume that we can actually put up a wall, an effective wall, against the U.S. infiltrating our personal data because they're going to do it. There is, you know, that is an issue. Um, again, what the European Courts of Justice can rule on is not really that. Uh, so mm. they're, 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 you know, what, what they're doing is they're clarifying the scope of what they can rule on and they're clarifying the scope of what regulators can rule on. Mm. Um, and one of the things that they're looking at there is a question of effective judicial remedy. So, yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah, France, uh, you know, Germany, uh, various EU countries have pretty invasive uh, you know, in, uh, surveillance regimes going on as well. If we as you know, citizens of EU member state countries wanted to complain about that, we have a recourse, you know, A, to the Data Protection Commissioner or whatever supervisory authority of that country does. And you know, that can go up all the way through the uh, European Courts of Justice and eventually, you know, the country can be told, no, you have to reform that. The issue with the US is that when it came to our data being uh, you know, sent to the US and you know, processed by a very invasive surveillance regime, we had no effective uh, judicial remedy for that. We had no one to complain to. Uh, and that was one of the big you know, reasons that the European Courts of Justice said, no, it's not an equivalent protection. So, and that's again where one of the places where, as soon as uh, you know, Brexit is completed, uh, there there will be serious issues for adequacy when it comes to the UK because yeah, they absolutely have a very uh, you know, invasive surveillance regime there, uh, and their UK Data Protection Act, which they you know, are, are saying is they're going to be their GDPR once they leave. Uh, has some massive carve-outs when it comes to our rights and you know, protections or the rights and protections of people in the UK when it comes to uh, immigration and uh, asylum seeking in particular. So basically, uh, yeah, there, there, there are no, no longer going to be adequate protections in comparison to EU uh, <laughs> uh, protections. Uh, and the effectiveness of the regulator is also going to be a massive question there. Again, the uh, Privacy Shield uh, Agreement, one of the things that that was meant to put in place was having a uh, ombudsperson that Europeans could complain to if they felt that their rights were being violated. Uh, and for most of the uh, was it, four years that, uh, you know, that, that, that that agreement was in place, there was a big help wanted sign on the role of the ombudsperson. And when it was in place, uh, it wasn't actually effectively uh, a, a, a an effective role or be independent. And having an independent regulator is one of the key reasons that uh, it was seen to not actually be adequate protections. Yeah, I mean, so, they, look, the Americans yeah. <laughs> take it seriously. Yeah. Let's call a spade a spade. Listen, yeah. Catherine, thank you very much for explaining it as usual in uh, to in, in terms that most of us can uh, can understand. Uh, that's Catherine. I do my best. <laughs> that's Catherine O'Keefe, there, director of training and research in Castlebridge, and that's all we have time for this week. Uh, on the Big Tech Show. Thank you very much again for watching and listening from me, Adrian Weckler, tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. I will see you same time next week. Bye-bye.